Welcome to VCR, a vintage cinema rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. I'm starting to question why I keep being invited back. Um, I just want to share with the viewers at home, we were getting set up. We're in your little basement studio, and I was testing my audio, and I'm like, why am I so quiet? Why am I hearing so much of Blake? And then you very patiently were like, is your microphone plugged in? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh. (laughs) So I've been doing this for almost two years now, and I'm still not very good at it. That's actually, it's funny. Jess and I were talking last night about the podcast, and I was saying that I think that, well, I know that I'm the most technically savvy of the three of us. I'll and, give you that. And, yeah. and, and definitely the best organizer. I think that you're probably the better podcaster of the three of us, just in the way that you explain What's on your mind about something? I'm I not as good I don't know as if you. It's, I don't know if it's that I'm the best podcaster. I'm just less inhibited. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I just have less shame. Well, speaking of less inhi- inhibitions and Woo! less shame, we've got Lawrence of Arabia today. We sure do. A <laughs> very long, very... Iconic film. Iconic film. Yeah. This is, in my mind, when people say they don't make them like they used to. This is like the first movie that comes to mind for uh, me. I mean, I mean, do you want four hours of camels in the desert? Because <laughs> <laughs> we've got you covered. Lords of Arabia has you covered. Yeah. So this is a... Uh, I have some anxiety right now, to be honest. I, I'm at a bit of a loss for how to communicate this one. Well, we're just going to do our best, I guess. I guess we're just going to do our best. Um, and, and this our mi- is... And our microphones, plugs in, our microphones are plugged in, so... So we're starting it off all right. Yeah. This is the primer episode for Lawrence of Arabia, so we're just going to talk as spoiler-free as possible. I'll do... Though I do have thoughts on that later when we get to who this movie is for. Cool. It's also part of our Oscar movie series, so oh, we do this every yeah. year. I completely forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm just proving your point. This is why you're the better organizer. Yeah, so... We do this every year right before the Oscars. We go back in time and look at two Oscars movies from a prior year. One of them won Best Picture, usually the one that we watched first, and the second one was nominated for Best Picture. And we kind of do a comparison. We compare to the current year. We compare to back then, which movies held up better. Right. Last year, we did The Godfather and... Cabaret. Cabaret. So And wanna... clearly, the fact that you can't remember Cabaret <laughs> yeah. suggests which one of those yeah. held up better. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So if you're interested in our uh, previous Oscar month, uh, go check those out. The Godfather was a Stone Cold classic, and I had a lot of fun doing that. And Cabaret also exists. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was fine. It just, it just wasn't for us. Anyways. And hey, spoiler alert, that... Phrase may be uttered again in the next couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right, do you want to start on the plot of Lawrence Arabia summary? And also, again, primer episode, this is as spoiler-free as possible, so don't worry about us spoiling too much here. Are you talking to the viewers or are you talking to me? Uh, maybe a little bit both, honestly. Okay, fair. <laughs> Peter O'Toole plays a very young, very pretty British officer named T.E. Lawrence, who decides to involve himself in the war going on between the Ottoman Turks and the Arabs. Yeah, during the World War One. During World War One, yeah. And he goes to meet with Prince Fival for a diplomatic mission. And through some resourcefulness and good timing on his own part, he sort of becomes very, very, very involved in the Arab conflict. And he becomes very involved with Prince Faisal's... Uh, conflict with the Turks and things kind of snowball from there. 
And if it sounds like I'm kind of being a little Weasley and talking around the plot, it's because the plot of this movie is a little hard to get your hands on sometimes. Yeah, and that's a really good point, actually. I think that maybe explaining some of the lead up to this point in history would make a lot of sense. This is kind of dipping into what I had in mind for who this is a movie for, but it feels like in 2024 being over 100 years removed from World, World War I, One, yeah, we've lost some of the knowledge of what happened at that point in time. And, you know, as a Western audience as well, like, I don't think I learned really much, if anything, about the Ottoman Empire in history class. Yeah, you know, I didn't even really consider that, but you're right. Like, I, there isn't much context. Like, I did not come out of this movie learning a whole heck of a lot about what happened. No, and I think that if you were watching this movie in 1962, you might have been a little bit more attached, but even then, that's 50 years after, right? Like, this is like watching, if you put yourself in the shoes of somebody in 1962 watching this, this is comparable to us thinking about the end of the Vietnam War. Kind of, yeah, that's that's a good comparison, yeah. Yeah. Hey, viewers at home, how much do you know about the Vietnam War? (laughs) Sound off in the comments. Yeah, yeah. So it's a movie that is a little lost to time for anyone of the younger generation. Like, do you mean lost to the sands of time? (laughs) (laughs) I like what you did there. Thanks. But it's also one of the most iconic films of all time. And certainly is. We're going to talk about the legacy in a lot of detail, but... I do want to touch on it when we get to the who is this movie for and does it hold up to a modern watch? Because I think that understanding this movie and what came of this film is actually really critical to your enjoyment of the film. And that's actually a question that I have for you right now. Do you think that this movie would be better having the full context of the film, not only the, the time period that it comes down in, but like everything that we talked about in the deep dive? Do you think knowing the backstory of the film and and what was going on at the time and how this was actually filmed itself, do you think that that would have increased your enjoyment as well as understanding the full context of the legacy of the film? See, like, spoiler alert, I never do any prep going into these movies. But to be fair, that's not, well, that's not just laziness. But, like, even I don't watch trailers generally. Like, if there's a movie that I think sounds interesting, I'll just walk in and be like, what's going on? And... I want to be surprised, you know? I don't want to have too many preconceptions going in, but I'll just say I probably should have broken that rule for this movie. Mm -hmm. I probably would have enjoyed it a lot more if I'd known a bit more about the context, the scope of it, what was actually going on at the time in history, because I'll be honest, I was a little lost in this movie. Yeah, and that's fair, and like I think that... In that sense, like maybe if you're still on the fence about this one, you do actually check out our deep dive next week and listen to, you know, the full context of the film and how it was made and everything else. And maybe go and check it out at that point in time, because I think that the biggest audience for this is film historians, people who are interested (laughs) in the history of film. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing about this movie that I guess you should know going in is that This is a movie that kind of fits into what some people know as the great man film genre. Oh, I've heard of the great man theory. Yeah. What's the film genre, though? Well, I mean, it's basically that, right? Like, it's a film centered around one man and their historical achievements. 
this is the other reason why I picked this movie is because it kind of looks like Oppenheimer's going to sweep at the Oscars this year. And Oppenheimer is essentially a great man film. It's a film about somebody who did something significant in history. The film is entirely based around them and their perspective of all of this. It looks at like both their feats, but also their faults as well. That's kind of what this movie is doing as well, right? Like it's it's a film that is heavily, heavily focused on around T.E. Lawrence. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to come back to Oppenheimer. Um it's kind of funny. So again, Blake and I are actually friends outside of this podcast. If you can believe it, <laughs> he's willing to put up with me. Um, so Blake, you texted me like a week ago, just saying, just so you know, this movie is, you sent something to the effect of this movie is a lot like Oppenheimer and that it's kind of boring. Yeah. And I was just <laughs> like, no, you said this movie is like all the worst parts of Oppenheimer. And I was like, oh no. And then I watched it and I was like, ah, he was right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to, I'm going to be comparing this movie to Oppenheimer a lot just because, um, like superficially these movies aren't that similar but like it has a lot of the same flaws i guess yeah like you can definitely see if you've seen oppenheimer you can definitely see how much was inspired by lawrence arabia you could maybe say they're they have similar like archetypical formats yeah and uh, it sounds like neither of us is particularly interested as fans of film interested in this kind of arc i think there's stuff to talk about but why am i being nice no i'm not (laughs) um i mean it's interesting and there's a lot to talk about but um i guess i'll save my grievances for the next episode yeah and i think that's fair it's just like i think going into this discussion saying that this is actually my my biggest thought about who this movie is for is that the movie is as flawed of a watch in 2024 as the character that it's portraying Yeah, you got you hit the nail on the head. I completely agree with that. And like, there is definitely some stuff that hasn't aged well that we can really sink our teeth into. But yeah, yeah. So anyway, characters and people you may know. We're starting off with T. Lawrence, real person who was a major involvement in the Arab uh, wars during World War One and the Arab uprising. Played by Peter O'Toole, who. Like you said, very, very pretty boy. Um, Hey, calls him as I sees him. (laughs) You know, he reminds me a lot of Rob Lowe. Yeah. Yeah. Similar facial features, actually. Well, he's kind of got like a Chris from Parks and Rec vibe, too. Like, uh, and Perkins. And Perkins, yeah. He's just just so happy to see everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's something somewhat innocent about him in the, especially the opening half of the film, right? He does eventually start to give in to some of his more destructive impulses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But in the opening half of the film, that's what I picture him as. He's got these very, if I can just man crush on Peter O'Toole for a second, <laughs> he has these very striking blue eyes. Yes. They look at once naive and innocent, but also mischievous. Cold. Yeah. Yeah. Like, especially like when he's in the desert and he's wearing like, white clothes and like he's got that like shock of blonde hair and his blue eyes are just like right i said we were probably going to compare this movie to dune at some point but he almost looks like a fremen yeah yeah with yeah those, very much so those... and well yeah we'll talk about that later don't let my girlfriend hear this episode <laughs> <laughs> just crushing on peter o'toole 
so modern audiences, this is a movie that came out in 1962. So oftentimes when we're talking about these older movies, modern audiences aren't going to have a lot of connection. Although Peter O'Toole actually did act into the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. He voiced Anton Ego in Ratatouille. That's right. <laughs> he sure did. The villain food critic of the film. And he was great in that movie. Yeah. He also was uh, King Priam in Troy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I completely forgot about him. Like, I had to look up who he was. And as soon as I saw him, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, Peter. Priam. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, ask your dad about Peter O'Toole because he knows who he is. Probably, yeah. yes. I remember watching Troy with my parents during the pandemic and my mom was instantly like, oh, it's Peter O'Toole. <laughs> like, yeah. There he is. Yeah. Well, that's what I was talking to this movie about Jess's dad earlier this week. And he was like, oh yeah, Peter O'Toole. And then he named off all the other actors in this film. And yeah, no, this is a film for a prior generations. For your actors. dad. Yeah. yeah. Prince Faisal is the kind of one of the central figures of the story. He's the one that Lawrence is tasked with going and assessing his capabilities as a leader. It is a little interesting. Like Lawrence is sent into Arabia to make contact with Prince Faisal. And it's very much just his orders are very vague. Like just just feel him out, you know, just see what he's all about, you know? Yeah, it's a really it's a really weird and, and it's like even picked up on in the film by Lawrence. Lawrence is like unsure of this task right mm -hmm. and yeah there's some ambiguity on what exactly that means and what he's allowed to do and so prince Faisal, a another you know all of these people are real people except for sharif the next person we'll talk about okay um, all based in reality played by alec guinness a sir alec guinness who you might know from somewhere yeah he was obi-wan kenobi in the original star wars Yep. Somebody that you do know. Somebody that you absolutely do know. Um, an English actor, and that's maybe the first spot of where this film maybe doesn't hold up in 1962 in the fact that an English actor is playing a Arabian prince. Yep, he's... if It's Obi-Wan and brownface, folks. I don't know how else to phrase it. There's <laughs> certainly a lot of bronzer going on. <laughs> yeah, I remember just being like, Oh, that's Alec Guinness. Them being like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. This movie was made in the 60s. Yeah, and it's really funny because, you know, obviously that's going to be the biggest sticking point. Like, the first thing that comes to mind when you're watching this, you're like, oh, that's not okay anymore. No, it, yeah. Bleh. I mean, it's kind of funny, too, because he doesn't even bother hiding his natural British accent when he's playing. Well, like, he puts on a bit of an accent, actually. I, I, yeah, I guess. Actually, that, that was a comment down in the effects and filming, but... The next person we're going to talk about is actually Egyptian, and he based his accent off of his co-star's accent. Oh, okay. What's really weird and complicated about him playing Prince Faisal is that he actually does kind of resemble Prince Faisal. The prince's really? picture is on Wikipedia, and they do resemble each other to the point where while they were filming this, people thought that he was Prince Faisal, like, in the streets. <laughs> oh, my God, you're right. He kind of does. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's really it's really awkward because it's, like, you know, it's, it's a British actor playing an Arab man in very bronzed face who kind of actually looks like the person he's portraying. Um, uh, so there's, there's a lot to unpackage there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's obviously not okay. That's ridiculous. Yeah. It's like... If I found an Indian guy who kind of looked like you, but then I decided to put you in my Indian movie and 
you know like uh, you were doing a biopic on me no an indian man you were doing a biopic on him and you got me to play him yeah Yeah. because you kind of look like him and it's like very wrong but also weird that (laughs) yeah you know it's funny you can cut this out if you want one of my students came up to me after class one day and he was like you look just like my last writing teacher i was like oh really and he showed me a picture and it was an indian guy who looked just like me yeah i mean startlingly similar to me but indian yeah i mean everybody has a doppelganger where they are in the world doesn't matter somebody looks like you somebody looks like you (laughs) yeah that's all i'm gonna say (laughs) yeah but anyway, yeah, so so lots of package there. It's definitely wrong, but it's also got that weirdness to it. We're not condoning it. We're just saying it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the next character is Sharif Ali Ibn al Karish. Doing my best here, everybody, to pronounce names. Sure. So apologies in advance. One of Prince Faisal's like chief officers, I would say. He holds a lot of respect with Prince Faisal and also there's a lot of tension early on with him and Lawrence. Uh, and then, you know, they form kind of an unlikely bond situation. Very unlikely, yeah. Played by Omar Sharif, one of Egypt's most famous actors of all time. And He's great in this movie. He is great. He's great. I actually think that he is my favorite performance of the film. Oh, he has so much conviction. You yeah. Know? Like he's he's one of those actors who just fully goes in. So yeah, I respect him a lot. Really, really, really liked his performance a lot. So shout out to all of our Egyptian listeners on this pod. If we have any. Um, we sure will after this episode. Yeah, I hope, I hope so. <laughs> Apparently, wasn't this movie like a huge hit in Egypt because Massive. of him? Yeah. Like it was banned in a lot of countries, but because he was in it, Egypt was just like, sure. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, after a while, there took some convincing, but eventually they released it and it was like one of the biggest films in Egypt of, of all time. time. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. He's he's great. He is great in it. Absolutely incredible. Modern audiences, again, older actor, not going to know him from a whole lot, and also the fact that you know he's prominently an Egyptian actor. There's he starred in a lot of like big movies in the '60s and '70s. Um, oh yeah, like westerns and stuff like that. Um, and also the Genghis Khan movie with um, John Wayne. Yeah, with John oh, Wayne. God. <laughs> Isn't that movie cursed for giving everyone cancer? Uh, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> as a mo- modern audiences are going to know uh, Omar Sharif. From Hildago in 2004, which I can't believe is 20 years old now. It's a movie that, you know, it's Viggo Mortensen right after Lord of the Rings. And it was a movie that as a kid 20 years ago, I was like, this is the greatest film of all time. And I watched within the last five years and I was like, this movie is absolute crap and i never want to look at it again oh really i was thinking i was rewatch hill doggo recently one of these days but it's not i that think it's a movie that you leave in the nostalgia part of your brain oh okay <laughs> it's not great <laughs> leave in the nostalgia part of your brain along with all your childhood hopes and dreams although what i'll say is that hill doggo is definitely another film that's heavily influenced by something like lawrence of arabia both in the setting and and some of the imagery all i remember is that there's something about a horse that's the whole movie. Yes, the the, the <laughs> movie is named after the horse. Oh, even better. So it's like, <laughs> I guess I don't need to see it then. <laughs> I got the gist of it. <laughs> after that, we have a couple other actors and characters I'm just going to mention quickly. Ada Abu Tai is the other sheik of the film. He's recruited by Lawrence almost at the midway of the film. Like He's a warring leader with the other arabs like he's actually fighting for the turks when we first meet him right yeah this is my second favorite performance of the movie i think that anthony quinn the actor playing him does a really good job with this mm. role 
Anthony Quinn's actually a Mexican-American actor, though. So again, you know, not hitting the nationalities quite right here, but uh, it's 1962. So Hollywood was really shooting from the hip back then. Yeah, I think he did a really good job. And then after that, we've got General Allenby, who's Lawrence's kind of main reporting officer that he deals with in the latter half of the film, played by the great Jack Hawkins, who I didn't even recognize in this role, but he's one of the prominent actors in Ben-Hur movie that you and I quite adored. Oh, yeah. Who was he in Ben-Hur? He was the Roman general who kind of takes Judah Ben-Hur under his wing. Oh, yeah. Makes him like a son, basically. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Really liked his performance of that a lot. I I mean, I love Ben-Hur, so... I was hoping to get back to it before we did this episode, but I didn't have time. No, that's a movie you got to set a night aside for. Yeah, exactly. And and after Jess and I watched this one, I was not allowed to pick any more epics from the 1950s and 60s uh, <laughs> this week. So You're cut off. <laughs> <laughs> so to round things off here, this was directed by Sir David Lean. Directed a lot of epics in the span of the 50s through 60s, even up to the 80s, actually. Um, So The Bridge on the River Kwai, which is a movie that we've been recommended on the podcast previously when you and I did Platoon, and it's on our list to watch it soon at some point. Um, He did Dr. Zivago and A Passage to India in the 80s. He also directed Charles Dickinson's Oliver Twist in 1948. Oh, yeah, I've seen that on TV. He's, He's somewhat of an important English film director. I'm on his Wikipedia page right now. He was also married six times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the old Hollywood lifestyle. You know, yeah. like the Clint Eastwoods of the world. <laughs> I guess so. How did he have time to direct all these epics? When he... All right, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so who is this movie for and does it hold up to our modern watch? We've really been dancing around this here. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead in on this one. I already said this movie, I think, is as flawed of a watch in 2024 as the person that it's portraying. I think that this movie is cinematically stunning. The cinematography of this film is incredible. In 2024, I kept saying, like, looking over at Jess and being like, look at this. Like, look at this. <laughs> this is insane. Like, this is amazing. It's a movie that, as you're watching it, you're just, like, constantly thinking of everything that came out of this movie, right? Like, Mad Max, for example, Dune is hugely influenced by this. Both oh, the novel yeah. and the Denny Villeneuve movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even like A New Hope, like you can feel George Lucas, his love for this movie. There's definitely, the desert has never been this gorgeous. I'll yeah. say that. Yeah, and even like the orchestral themes of the song, like they're huge. They're like, watching this, I was like, this is John Williams' favorite movie of all time. I like, yeah. and I don't, I, I actually don't know that. I'm just saying, like, John Williams as a composer, there's no way he doesn't look at this film and take, like, so much inspiration for Star Wars, for Indiana Jones. Like, to me, that's what this movie does extraordinarily well is, like, the movie aspects of it, the cinematography and the score, the grandeur, the yeah. technical mastery. Yeah. Yeah. On the counter side to that, the first hour, while so cinematically beautiful, really drags on oh just the first hour blake <laughs> <laughs> honestly and and this is kind of my take on this this movie is three hours and almost 45 minutes yep and i think that while the cinematography is really beautiful in the first hour as a modern audience we're not used to having this kind of patience for a film yeah and and the pacing is a significant issue like you said throughout the film 
But in my opinion is if you were to cut the first hour of this film into like 20, 25 minutes, I think that the pacing of the rest of the film would feel significantly better. I think that with how long and grand the shots are of the first hour with how much reliance is placed on that, you know, you start to lose interest with that as a modern audience. And I think cutting that down would have made the rest of the film like more engaging. You know, I will say, um, and I I know a lot of cinema purists are going to come at me for this, but I don't care. There are a lot of long sequences of the desert. Yes. And people riding through the desert. And it's beautiful. It is shot extremely well, but there is a lot of them. There is a lot of them. If they had maybe just cut all those in half, you could have still admired the scenery and- And the score. I almost feel like the setting almost overwhelms the characters. Yes. You know what I mean? And I'll just say, I should save this for the next episode, but whatever. Like, I had a very hard time connecting to any of these characters or understanding what any of them really wanted. And in a sense, like, I actually did a little bit connect with Lawrence as a character in the beginning. I actually thought he was somewhat compelling, but... I do have things to say about the beginning, but again, maybe I should save that for the deep dive. Yeah, I, I think that we want to save that for the the really deep conversation, spoiler, full talk. But in the first 10 minutes, I was like, I can really feel who Lawrence is as a character. And I can kind of understand this, like, you know, lightning in a bottle, charismatic, but goofball type of character. Just and, right person, right place, right time. Yeah, yeah, you know, and then as we get through the the next 45 minutes and there's so much emphasis placed on the cinematography and the score, like, I kind of lose that again. And then, so, you know, you're trying to reconnect with him, but, like, he's he's changing and all of this sort of thing. And it's it's hard to follow Lawrence through this His movie. His arc, yeah. Yeah. And I have lots of things to say about that next week, but, yeah. yeah. And then we already talked about, like, how, how far removed we are from the history of World War One at this point, which, you know, like, is in part a bit of a shame, that we don't have this much knowledge over this Maybe anymore. you and I just didn't pay enough attention in like grade 10 history. <laughs> There's no way that we would have learned about the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and maybe like the basics of what the Ottoman Empire was, but like I really couldn't describe what the Ottoman Empire is in, in great detail. Something about furniture, right? <laughs> oh, obvious joke. Anyways. So all of, all of those issues aside... Who is this movie for? Like, who who are you going to recommend this movie to? I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, film historians. Yeah. I can't see anyone else really enjoying this movie in 2024. I think if this is your first time viewing this, I think that's that's primarily who this is going to be for. Now, yeah. the, the secondary person that I'm going to recommend this to is if you loved Oppenheimer. Like, Oppenheimer's- Loved one of, it, yeah. yeah. If it's one of your favorite movies of all time- then you should probably check this one out. Yeah, if you're the kind of person who likes that shit, then yeah, definitely. So basically, yeah, show this movie to your dad. <laughs> and I'm sure he'll get a big kick out of it. Yeah, and like the other the other recommendation I would say is like if you're a big fan of the movie Dune that Denis Villeneuve has recently done and the second one's coming up very soon i'm so excited for it but if you're a fan of part one for the cinematography if you thought the cinematography of that movie was incredible and you didn't really care about like the sci-fi details and everything else like this one's obviously a connection there yeah for sure that out and i will say maybe one of the reasons i didn't vibe with this movie so much is that like 
personally and aesthetically, I'm not that interested in setting or world building. Right. So this was a little bit harder for me to get into. Whereas for me, I can appreciate all of that, but I also... You know, I'm trying to watch this movie with the lens of a modern audience and trying to recommend this to modern audiences, right? Sure. And if, if I'm noticing the faults in this movie and like, and if it's starting to grind against like my appreciation of the film, then like it's something that I do have to bring up while we're doing this. Yeah, like right? if it's if, if if we're chafing against it, like then other people are going to stand no chance. Yeah, exactly. I was watching this on my laptop. Emily, my girlfriend, came in, took one look at the screen, and then just walked away. <laughs> <laughs> So I also would recommend at this point in time as well saying that like you should probably watch this movie with subtitles. And honestly, a big part of that is just following some of the character names, but also like a lot of the locations and understanding like where people are going next and what's going on. I think that it's just going to make your enjoyment a little bit better. Yep, I'd agree. Like it's not that I didn't understand the characters. It's just like sometimes I had a hard time following who or what they were talking about. Yeah, you know, bro, I had I always keep subtitles on and I was still kind of lost. Yeah. Like, wait, what are we doing? Yeah, and that's that's fair. So yeah, we're I think you and I are very much on the same page with this one. But what's your one scene to sell the movie? Um, okay, maybe you should just very briefly explain this uh segment again. Sure. So our one scene to sell the movie is an alternative to watching a movie trailer and deciding whether or not to check out a movie based on the movie trailer because as you and I have said in previous episodes, movie trailers are an advertisement for a movie for the audience who were originally watching it back at the time that the movie was released. And again, it's an advertising tool. It's not a true rendition of what the art is or, or what it's portraying. And oftentimes it actually, in a sense, can counter what the original intention of the director and the filmmakers were behind the film. Yeah, trailers often suck. Yeah, <laughs> that's a yeah. good way to summarize exactly what I just said. <laughs> yeah. um, you used the scalpel, I used a hammer. <laughs> yeah, so in that sense, you know, we were trying to recommend a scene of this movie that best represents the film, and if you're in- interested in that scene, in checking the movie out. I'm going to start by saying, you know, before you let me know which one your favorite one is, this is actually the movie that I had the hardest time finding this the right scene for yeah i did too um just because the scenes that i really appreciated aren't really on movie clips it doesn't look like i also had that and i ended up cheating and picking a different scene that oh wait we can clips. do that ah. well <laughs> we usually don't but in this case i cheated so okay well i'll just share mine which actually i followed the rules for once it's actually just... we just make the rules up as we go along yeah that's true <laughs> Um, I actually just picked the first one. Uh, it's called A Funny Sense of Fun. Mm. It's one of the, it's the early scene where Lawrence is talking to superiors and they're explaining the mission to him. It's interesting because it's, we get kind of a sense of where we're going. We get kind of a sense of who Lawrence is. At this point in the movie, he's kind of this brash young troublemaker, you right. know? And um, it also has that amazing match cut that amazing transition where he lights a match yeah then boom we smash cut to a uh, shot of the desert which is literally called a match cut now because of this movie oh okay well then there you go it's yeah. the original it's the og match cut it is yes okay even as jaded and cynical as we are 80 years later that transition really holds up oh definitely like literally he strikes a match and then boom we cut to a wide shot of like the desert and it's kind of like sunsetty, so it's like ruddy brown even like in 2024, I sat up a little straighter at that point. I was yeah. like, oh, hey. Well, and the score is like 
coming in at that moment where they do the match cut there. And I actually agree with you. That's the scene that I picked on movie clips Mm -hmm. because it does include all of that includes like every aspect of the film the score the cinematography and a little piece of what who lawrence is a little piece yeah and and not enough for me and that's where i ended up being like you know what this isn't enough for me to really like recommend this to be the scene so the scene that i alternatively actually chose and like i said i cheated and picked a scene from a different website or a different youtube channel called binge society the scene is called sharif ali gives lawrence arab robes for saving Gassim. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this is a really weird scene to pick, honestly. And, and hear me out on this because it's a scene that doesn't include the score at all. It's silent for much of the scene. And it also is a scene that isn't focused on the big cinematography aspects of the film, but it shows a very interesting and maybe even like the most pivotal point in Lawrence's whole narrative arc. And that is when it after he does something very heroic, they give him a chief's outfit, essentially. Yeah. Um, this very white, like, flowing robe. They say, you know, like, basically just, like, go and, and enjoy it kind of thing. And he goes and he goes around, like, this oh, massive Oh, God, dam. yeah. And he's just, he's, like, swanning about in his new clothes with his arms out. Like, he looks like a little kid showing off his new Yeah, like, and even, yeah. like, he pulls his dagger out and he's looking at himself in the reflection of the dagger. Yeah, um, that was pretty charming. It really sticks out for me because it's a scene that, like, when I was watching it, I was like, this is really well done and I can't put my finger on why. And it actually goes a little bit back to the effects and filming when we get into the deep dive but he's essentially just doing what feels natural to him like as as an actor in this moment that wasn't none of this is actually like scripted uh, yeah scripted so it was it was basically like you've been given this and it's it's where you see like the dawn of who lawrence is going to be in this film for the rest of the film like he he, you see him looking at his reflection in the blade and you start to feel like who he's becoming and mm. and this kind of self-assuredness that is beginning to wash over him that he is larger than life. And he's going native too. Yes. Yeah, he's really ingratiating himself into this culture. Yeah, and so like for me, that's a scene that it really sticks out for me for so many reasons. It also, <laughs> in an unfortunate just weird twist kind of contradicts what I was saying about how beautiful cinematography, like the incredible score, like it has none of that in there. So I think as a film goer, if you are interested in the scene that I'm talking about, and then you get hit with all of the cool cinematography and the score, then I think that's going to like come together as a really interesting watch for you. Yeah, potentially. So I do like the scenes where we get more of a close up on Lawrence himself and we see what kind of a person he is. And it's more of a traditional great man use in in that sense too, right? I suppose, yeah. Whereas like the first hour like we talked about the pacing is an issue and we start to we start to lose our our vision of who Lawrence is to the backdrop of like everything else that the movie is showing on camera. I guess so, yeah. So when to watch this is a four-hour epic, almost. Yeah. So it You might want to space this one out a bit. <laughs> there's two ways you can watch this. It's a movie that, you know, you should be watching with your undivided attention. Like, you can't really be looking down, although you can kind of look down in the first 40 minutes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a few wide-sweeping desert sequences where I definitely checked my phone. Yeah, but I think that if you're going to watch this one from start to finish, this is like a Saturday night 
put everything aside, start this one at like seven o'clock kind of movie. Yeah, pretty much. Or you could watch it Sunday afternoon as well. I like watching my epics on Sunday afternoon on the couch when I'm just kind of lazing about. Yep. The other kind of thing that you can do with this is this is a movie from the 60s. It has an intermission in it um, for its length. It does indeed. I really appreciate intermissions in longer films like this. And I think that they usually provide a pretty good stopping point where you could put like watch the film in two parts um and my best example of that is the lord of the rings extended editions have really really good intermission points where you can instead of watching three four hour movies you can watch six two hour films in you know the course of a week or two weeks kind of thing and the way that they cut them off makes it really easy to watch in that sense okay interesting what i'll say about this movie is the intermission comes at two hours and 20 minutes into the film so if you're going to watch it in that sense, you need to have at least two hours and 20 minutes to set aside for part one. And then part two is only an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. What I'll say about that is I actually don't love the spot where it cuts. And I'm going to talk about this more in the deep dive. But if it was me personally putting the slotting the intermission in, I put the intermission 20 minutes earlier. Okay, interesting, because I actually didn't mind where the intermission was. Yeah. So I thought it made sense for the story. I, I think there's a slightly... A slightly better spot to put it, but that's for... That's a conversation for next week. Yeah, that's a conversation for next week. So where to watch right now, it is streaming on the Criterion channel. Although I have seen it on Prime before, like two years ago it was streaming on Prime. And now it's moved. Yeah, so this is a movie that what I'll say is like, just pay attention to your local streaming site that you use. And eventually you might have it pop up on there if you're really interested in checking this one out alternatively i watched this one actually i started watching this one on youtube because there's actually a 4k free youtube video i did see that i think youtube will take that down pretty quickly though so. uh, it's been up for like four or five years at this never point. mind then i so, guess youtube is picking its battles yeah so it had a few hundred thousand views what i'll say about it though is that i found the audio i actually started watching it like that just to see what it was like so that i could recommend it or not recommend it sure on here and I'll say that the audio of it was horrible. Um, <laughs> okay. It's very quiet. And so yeah. I would recommend, honestly, rent the high, ultra high definition version wherever you want to, you know, rent this from because this is a movie that deserves the absolute best viewing experience possible. Like, yeah, the cinematography is so good that you really do want to see this. And that's also part of the problem that I had with the movie clips was the movie clips are all in 720 and they just don't like do the scenes justice on movie clips like they're they're not very spectacular yeah they're not very good movie quality i i think that you really want to check this one out in 4k okay yeah and otherwise that's it for the primer episode we will talk spoiler full discussion of lawrence arabia next week we certainly will tell your dad <laughs> tell your dad 